0: Genesis chapter 30 Then Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, so she became jealous of her sister and she said to Jacob, "Give me children or else I die." Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel and he said, "Am I in the place of God who is withheld from you the fruit of the womb?" Just to be clear, the then that this section of Scripture begins with is tied directly into the last verses of our previous chapter, chapter 29. Those verses that tell of Leah having four sons to Jacob. Not one son, but four. And they're not, they weren't twins or even just one set of quads. They were all individual births. And it took four of them to get Rachel to this point. Perhaps in number three, she's getting a bit miffed. But when son number four arrives on the scene, the light bulb comes on and she figures out, if I'm in a contest, I'm not even on the board yet, and my competition is way ahead of me. The question that we need to ask ourselves is, when did the competition between these siblings begin? Because we hear nothing about it ever before. We are told something of the women themselves in our last chapter. Leah is compared with Rachel in verses 16 through 18 of chapter 29. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and beautiful in appearance. And now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Rachel. Leah may have had weak eyes, but Jacob had eyes only for the younger sister. His heart was set on having her, and we are told that he loved her. But as we saw in our last chapter, their dad Laban, in order to trick Jacob to gain an additional seven years of labor from him, brings in the eldest daughter on the night of what Jacob thought was his wedding with Rachel. And by the time Jacob figures out what has happened, the deal has already been done. The die has already been cast. He was a twice married man. And even though he loved Rachel, even though he loved Rachel, this didn't stop Leah from becoming pregnant four times. And this caused jealousy toward Leah by her younger sister. And that jealousy was then vented, but not toward Leah, but toward the man who claimed to love her. She went to Jacob with a demand and a decree. Give me children or I will die. And the command by Rachel had to have been very hard for Jacob to hear because he dearly loved this woman. And as easy as it is for us to think that the anger of Jacob was, was being vented or at the frustration of Rachel towards him, there could have been a much deeper thing involved in his anger. You see, Jacob knew something about how babies were conceived. Not because he was a father four times over, but because he had had that talk with his dad years ago. And the talk that I'm talking about, the one that I'm meaning here, is a talk about how his mother was barren for so long. In Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 and 20 read, Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padanaram, and the sister of Laban. Of Aramean to be his wife, and Isaac entreated Yahweh on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and Yahweh was moved by his entreaty. So Rebekah and his wife, his, his wife conceived. And it was this talk, the entreaty of Isaac to the Lord on behalf of his wife. That talk wasn't because he had just been married for a year or maybe two, it was nearly 20 years later that she finally conceived. Jacob knew the truth of Psalm 127, verse 3. Behold, children are an inheritance of Yahweh. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And here now his beloved wife, who he adored, was making a rash and bold statement to him, one that he possibly feared the Lord would honor. See, he had made a rash and bold vow to God 14 years earlier. You keep me on this path, you give me food and clothes, and then you can be my God. And he knew that he had no power to give children to his wife. He could, give him, he could give her his time, his love, his life, but children? He couldn't do that. And those other things that he could give to her, that he did give to her, it didn't seem like it was anything to her, it didn't seem like it was mattered at all. This chapter, this chapter of all the chapters of Jacob's life, the accounting of his life, those chapters that truly are a dumpster fire, of them, of all of them, this one, this one chapter produces the most black, toxic, fuming flames and smoke of all the other chapters. And for this reason, we need to ground ourselves in truth. We need to understand the reason behind and even before all these very weird and strange things that we're told about in this chapter. Because if we do not, if we are not careful in our understanding the why of the Bible, the why of even today's chapter, we are very much prone to begin to think that that how we live, how we worship, how we think about God, that it doesn't matter. We can start thinking that we can worship him however we think is okay, that he's going to be okay with that. We must have our minds, we must have our hearts, our souls redirected back to true north. Genesis 1.1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this single opening sentence is the basis for all that is. We know that there's a heaven and an earth. We see them. We feel them. We live in them. Are they real is not the question that needs to be asked and answered. The question that should, that should be asked is why. Why are they here? Why did God create? Why is there something instead of nothing? And what does this opening sentence of the Bible tell us? Well, creation proves that God exists. There can't be creation without a creator. And all design always points towards a designer. And the Bible is replete with verses telling us who is responsible for all of this. Nehemiah 9.6, Isaiah 45.18, Psalm 100.3, Romans 1.20. This single opening sentence proves that God is before all things. And from verses such as Revelation ten six, we know that he is eternal, immutable. This single sentence proves that God is the source of all life, that he is unlimited in his power, unlimited in his wisdom, which is why we must know the why of creation. We can be. And we should be confident that he is the one that's behind it. But may, we must always be course correcting ourselves back to the true north in our understanding of why he created humanity. Why he created all that there is. You see, because we in our fallen state, we are very much self-centered. And this means a lot more than just that we're selfish. And we are. And it means a lot more than we're just self-loving and we are. and It means a lot more than we are just narcissistic and we are. It actually means that we think that we are the center of the universe. We may not think that we created the heavens and the earth, but we are confident that God created them for us. That we, individually and even corporately, we are the center of the universe. That we are the reason that God exists. I mean, look at me. And as, tongue, as in tongue-in-cheek as that may be, there is reality behind it. There is truth that is meaningful and important to grasp, to hang on to. You see, in traveling, it doesn't matter Where you're traveling, you must always first have a destination, and you must have directions. And it doesn't matter if you're traveling to the moon or to Walmart. Your life, all life, is on a journey. All creation is traveling on this journey. The universe is in a collision course with the inevitable. It's on a journey to recreation, and God is its destination. And humanity, you, are on the same course. All humanity is. And like the rest of creation, humans will be purified by fire. But however, the fire that the rest of creation is purified by is not the same as that which is set apart for those that are created in his image. That fire, the fire that is specific for those created in his image bearers, is the wrath of his holy and righteous anger that is poured out eternally on eternally created beings who have committed treason against an eternal God. Except for some. This eternal and magnificent being that we know as God, for some of us, Those that he chose to be in him from before he said, let there be light for us. He made a way for us to be reconciled to him, to be saved from that eternal wrath, that eternal fire. He did this in himself and even by himself. And this truth is testified to us in places like John, John 1 through 4. And in Revelation 4, 11, we're told, Worthy of you are, are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. And there, there is our true north. God is our destination. Heaven is not. Heaven is the throne of God. God is our true north. But as we're told in the Bible, God is not for man. God is for God. It is for his glory that all things have been created, even the wicked for the day of evil, Proverbs sixteen four, And we're told in Colossians 1, verse 16, For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible, invisible, whether the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things have been created through him and for him. And there, there is our true north. And there is the why that we, along with all things, have been created. Not for ourselves. Not not to have our best life now. Not even to serve other humans. We're created for him. And this is the reality that we need to course-correct ourselves back to. And we need to understand an important truth concerning the people in chapters such as today. And to do so, though, to get to understanding of that truth, we have to head to the New Testament. To Colossians 1. Grab your Bibles and turn with me there. Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 17. And beginning in verse 17, we're given a crash course in theology. And there we are once again course, rec- course corrected back again to true north. Beginning in verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have everything pla- ev- have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having, been, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him were things on earth or things in heaven. And there's the truth of the how, the why, and even the who of creation once again. And we are given these truths that these people in our chapter from today did not have. That he, God, is the head of the church. The God who reconciled us to himself, by himself, and through himself. And there's another important truth made clear in these verses. The thing that he reconciled to himself, by himself, and for himself, that thing that he is head of, that thing is so important in his economy. That thing is so important in his economy that through reconciling it, All things have been reconciled to him. A truth told to us beginning in verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and enemies in mind and in evil deeds, but now he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the family firmly grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. That's verses 23 and 24. And we need to deal with that if that's found at the beginning of verse 23. The if that is there makes it seem like you can lose your salvation, makes it seem like you can decide to walk with Christ, that you can decide to come to him, but not when you take the reconciliation of God seriously. The Bible tells us that Christ is in us, as we read from verse 3, or as you can see in Colossians 1, 3. Christ is in us. How did that happen? Did you reach up into heaven and grab him down and pull him and shove him inside of you? Can you do this? Did you do this? Because if you did not, and if you cannot, then you cannot have any part in his salvation. You cannot have any more part in the second and eternal birth than you did in your first birth. But let's finish that thought by Paul. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And I fill up what is lacking of Christ's afflictions in my flesh. What in the tarnation does that mean? I mean, who in their right mind would rejoice in their sufferings, especially for somebody else? And what does he mean by this filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? I mean, how is anything lacking in Christ? What's he referring to here? What Paul found out, what he learned through living in the Spirit, having the Spirit of God living in him, was the more that he poured himself out for the body of Christ, the more that he made himself vulnerable to the body, the more that the body of Christ became his life, the more he fell in love with the lover of his soul. And this is why he was able to say that he rejoiced in his suffering for the sake of the body. And what he meant when he said that he was filling up that which was lacking in the suffering of Christ is this. Christ suffered for our salvation. Our suffering. Paul's suffering. That suffering is in the salvation of Christ. For the body of Christ. For the church. Which is why he finished that thought the way that he did in verses 24 through 27. On behalf of his body, which is the church, of which I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God given to me for you, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of his mysteries among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And there. Now we can understand why we have chapters in the Bible such as these. Why God would give chapters like this. Chapters where we hear confused and very sinful saints acting in ways that we would not as we forget that they did not have the blessing of the word of God given to them yet. They didn't even have the ten words spoken to them yet. They knew God, but they knew him imperfectly, as their lives demonstrate to us. Rachel blaming God and almost even daring him to curse her by her initial statement to Jacob. And then Jacob, willingly going along with another bad idea, and having relations with Rachel, slave, and then she conceives. And then Rachel praises God for that son, and then even for the next son, as we're told in verses 3 and 8 of our chapter today. And then that sister Leah, the one who in our last chapter, who praised God for her children in our last chapter, for the sons that he had given to her. But since God closed her womb and she could no longer have children, and her sister had given a replacement woman to Jacob, Leah follows suit as well. And Jacob goes along with that as well. Verses 9 through 13. And just when we think the strangeness of this family seems like it could get no stranger, we're given verses 14 through 16. And in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. And then Rachel said to Leah, hey, give me some of those mandrakes of your son. And she said to him, is it such a small matter for you to take my husband? And would you also take my son's mandrakes? So Rachel said, well, how about this? He will lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the field in the evening and Leah went out and met him and said, you must come in to me for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. What we can learn from these verses is that Jacob may have been a strong man, an able and capable man at work, but at home he was a weak man ineffective man. One that doesn't have a backbone. And his, fi- his family suffers because of it. He seemingly has no moral compass, and he just goes along with whatever happens just to get along. He did this with his mom, and he acts this way with his wives as well. He's told who he's going to sleep with. Not asked, not suggested, He's actually just traded, just as the daughters of Laban have been traded, stuff for a person. And he goes along with this. And the thing that happens next, the thing that we're told that happens next in our chapter doesn't seem to sit right in our minds either. Verses 17 and 18. And God listened to Leah. And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have given my servant woman to my husband. And so she named him Issachar. And verse 17 isn't a typo. God listened to Leah. Why would God listen to a woman who's willing to ruin the covenant of marriage in giving her husband to another woman just so she could one-up her sister? And then we're told the same thing again in verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she named him Joseph, saying, May Yahweh give me another son. And we read this and we wonder, what's going on? God doesn't listen to sinners. Isn't that what we're told in John 9, 31? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to them. Isn't that the hammer that we use to get people to fall into line with the rules that they're supposed to follow? If you don't act right, God's not going to listen to your prayers. He's going to ignore you until you fall in line and be a good person. And isn't this why we don't understand these verses? Were these women, and Jacob as well, were they not acting in sin? Were their actions not sinful? Oh, yeah. But they were not sinners. They were, as we are told in John nine thirty one, God-fearing. They were redeemed. They were the joy that was set before Christ. And because of this truth, this truth should cause us to rejoice. Because if acting perfectly, if thinking perfectly, if you keeping the law perfectly was the standard by which you have access to the throne room of grace, to God hearing and answering your prayers, you haven't got a prayer. Not a single chance that he will hear and answer any of your prayers prayers and as you sit there think back has he answered your prayers are you perfect then why do we think it's so strange that God would hear these women and bring about that which he deems best in the life of these women and Jacob as well We think this because their sins are so apparent and out in the public. And our sins, oh, our sins are hidden. They're private. They're on the computer or our phone. And we think that since people can't see them, that they don't hear them, that they really don't count. That we're fooling people. And maybe you are. But do you really believe that you're fooling God? The God, the God that created all things, that knows all things. Do you really think that you have him fooled? That he doesn't know? That he can't see? And still, he answers your prayers. But, and here comes that big but. But, but how much of a dumpster fire, how many scars, how many ruined jobs, how many failed relationships, how many years of loneliness will it take for you to come to the end of yourself and finally realize that God is fine with you skinning your knees. He's fine. He's happy with you ruining your reputation until you finally come to the end of yourself and obey. You see, he will answer the first and most important prayer that you ever prayed, when you prayed for forgiveness and for life in him. And he will bring about those things in your life to make that prayer a reality, to answer that prayer. You're not skinning his knees. You aren't ruining his reputation, no matter What your title is, no matter what position you hold in the church or out of the church, the scars that you obtain here in this realm, whether external or internal, are your scars. But since they're only temporary, he obtained scars that he will carry on his eternal resurrected body for all eternity scars where the nails pierced his hands and his feet scars where the spear was thrust into his side scars on his head and on his back where he was flogged mercilessly and had a human crown placed on his perfect head scars that you gave him wounds that you inflicted him with and he did this all for his glory And because of this, we should rejoice if we're in him. Because he will hear our prayers. And he will answer them. And he will give us the desires of our heart as we delight in him. And he will do this just as he deems right and appropriate. As he did here. Which means... That even in your sin, even as you're skinning your knees and ruining your reputation, you are still in his will. And he is working all things together for our good. And this is why he hears the prayers of Jacob, of Leah, of Rachel. But there is a man in our account today whose prayers are never told that he ever hears. Laban. Verses 25 through 30. Now it happened when Rachel had borne Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, "Send me away that I may go to my own place and to my own land. Give me my wives and my children from whom I have served you, and let me go, for you yourself know my service which I have rendered you." But Laban said to him, "If now I have found favor in your sight, stay with me. I have interpreted, by an omen, that Yahweh has blessed me on your account." And he continued and said, Name your wages, and I'll give it to you. But he, Jacob, said to him, You yourself know how I have served you, and how your livestock have fared with me. For you had little before I came, but it has spread out to a multitude, and Yahweh has blessed you at every step of mine. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? There's a subtle and intentional manner in which the conversation between these two men are given to us. Jacob has fulfilled his 14 years of indentured service to Laban. And Laban is said to have found out by an omen that it was Yahweh that was blessing him because of Jacob. The exact same thing that Jacob says then back to Laban. Except Jacob knew. He knew that it was Yahweh who was blessing Laban. Through firsthand knowledge and not an omen or divination. Saints, don't get hung up on things like this when you run across them in your Bible. Don't allow them to cause you to stumble when Saul goes to the um, the witch from Endor to bring back Samuel from the dead. When Balaam seeks the Lord and is heard by him. Don't think that those are an anomaly in the matrix. God uses his created beings all things in his created realm, as he sees fit for his glory. But that doesn't mean that all humans that he uses, that all those that he reveals truth or even himself to are of him. The enemies of Israel very often were able to rightly say to Israel that God had revealed himself to them and that they were coming at his will to destroy Israel that they were the instruments that he is using for his glory. But Jacob was different than Laban, even though Jacob is the same as Laban, both deceivers. He was different in that he was the joy that was set before Christ, and Laban was not. And after only 14 years, it only took 14 years for him to finally figure out It only took him 14 years of being tricked and deceived for him to finally learn his lesson. Laban said to him in verse 31, what shall I give to you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this one thing for me, I will again pasture and keep your flock. Let me pass through your entire flock today, removing from them every speckled and spotted sheep and every black one among the lambs and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and such shall be my wages. So my righteousness will answer for me later when you come concerning my wages. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if, if found with me, will be considered stolen. Jacob didn't want anything from this man. And here he is finally acting morally upright. Here, here finally he's acting like his grandfather Abraham did when he returned from vanquishing the armies that had raided Lot. When the evil king of that evil city, Sodom, came to him with an offering of things and he didn't want that evil man to have any say to be able to say that he had given him anything that the king of Sodom had any part in the blessing of God and Jacob didn't want Laban to be able to say the same thing about him and Laban when he heard this he thought this is another w chalk another w up in the wind column for me so Laban said behold let it be according to your word And then we're told again of the deceit of Laban. How the Lord then again used the ordinary means of grace, extraordinary, in blessing Jacob with herds and flocks. And rest assured, there is nothing special about poplar trees or almond trees or plain trees. These peeled sticks are not the reason that Laban's solid flocks all of a sudden started producing spotted and striped young. The first 14 years of service to Laban, they were for Rachel. And during those 14 years, we witnessed God fulfilling the covenant terms that Jacob had made with him. Those covenant terms back in chapter 28, verse 20, providing food and clothing for Jacob throughout this time, keeping him on this journey, just as Jacob said, if you do these things, you can be my God. But now... But now God is beginning to fulfill the covenant that he made with Jacob. Now that Jacob has at least partially come to the end of himself, no longer trusting in his cunning, his skills, but relying on God to be his shield, for God to be his provider, which is the only way he could actually make this stipulation to Laban. And this is the same heart that his grandfather had towards the Lord in rebuking the king of Sodom. And all it took was 14 years of scars, of ugliness, pain, suffering, to learn to trust that God was the covenant maker and covenant keeper. But it's going to take another six years to work off more of the flesh that was keeping him from seeing the truth that the God had made that covenant of peace with him. He didn't make it with God. Verse 43. So the man spread out exceedingly and and had large flocks and male and female servants and camels and donkeys. Saints, we need to realize something about these people. They were messed up. All of them. They were emotionally messed up. They were lacking in social skills. They acted improperly. And this is why God has given us this section of Scripture. He gave us this section of Scripture to let us know that unless we get our act together, that he's going to turn us over to the dark side. But never fear, you can act better. You can do this. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You, you decide to follow Jesus. We need to look around and decide that none go with me. I'm going to do this, we have the power. We have the moral uprightness, the self-determination. Oh, and with the help of the Lord, we can do this. No, we can't. Even if we could grasp the sword of the Lord, and we can't, But even if we could, we can never be holy. We can never do that. And we are given these sections of Scripture. God fills vast amounts of the gospel with the accounts of horribly flawed individuals, just like you, just like me, in order that we can learn this life is not about us. It's not about you. Nothing in your life is really about you. Even though you think that it is. Everything in life is really about the one who is told to us in verse 1 of Genesis 1. And yet, he has condescended To not only include us in his salvation, the covenant of peace that he made within himself before the creation of the world. He's also condescended to make himself known to you in a much deeper way than he did with all these saints in the book of Genesis. He's used their lives in the telling of his love for you. As given to us in his gospel. And everything that happened in their lives was the will of God for them. Everything that happened in their life. Everything that happened in their life brought about the birth of the Son of God. Everything. This was the will of God for them. But saints, as you sit there. With the word of God. Do you know what the will of God is for you? If not. Grab something to write with and on. Jot these verses down. Because God desires for you to know his will for your life. First. Isaiah 46 9 and 10. Remember, remember the former things. Past, long ago, these things in the book of Genesis. Remember them, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my counsel will be established and and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And you must have it firmly established in your heart and your mind. You must know. That God's will, will happen exactly and precisely as he desires it to happen. Which means that the job that you have, that is the will of God for you right now. The spouse that you have, they are the will of God for you. This church, if you have covenanted with this church, This church is the will of God for you. And you can know that it is because it's come about. You are never, hear me on this, you are never outside of his will, ever. Even if you find yourself locked in a cell, a prison cell, because you have broken the law, that's the will of God for you. And then, then, it is then that he is working that along with all things for our good and his glory. When you find yourself in a hospital or maybe at the funeral home, wondering why, how did these things get here? Why are these things happening? Maybe thinking, I made a bad choice in getting in the car on that day. I shouldn't have gone to the store. I didn't need to go to Walmart then. And if I hadn't, that person would still be alive. Thinking that that bad thing happened in my life because I hadn't been in his word all week long. That's why it happened. Thinking that all these things are outside of the will of God. But they're not. They are the will of God for you. And his counsel is as we're told in Isaiah, will be established. He will accomplish all his good pleasure. But but God has a much more precise will for you. And you're asking, pray tell, what is that will? Well, there's an occasion when the physical, mortal family of Jesus came to save himself from himself. We're told in Mark 3, of an encounter between them. Beginning in verse 31, his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him, calling him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And answering them, he said, Who are my mothers and my brothers? And looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. He said that whoever does the will of God is his brother, his sister, his mother. So what does that mean? Well, we can know what that means by the things that were told to us before the then of verse 31. The events that are told to us happening before Mark Mark chapter 3. When Jesus is is healing and casting out demons and the religious atheists are mocking him and calling him a heretic, to which he says, "...truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven." The sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Verse 28 to 30. They, these religious atheists, they were denying the truth of the gospel, the truth of God incarnate. The will of God is for you to believe in his son. His will is given to us in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And you're thinking, oh, so it is me pulling up by me, myself, pulling myself up by my bootstraps. It is me working out my own salvation in fear and trembling. It is me keeping the law. Isn't that what God says after he tells us that the process of sanctification is his will for us? And then he lays out the works that are required to perform and keep those things that follow the verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians, that you abstain from sexual immorality, and the rest of the list that goes on there? No. All those things that follow the colon of First Thessalonians 4.3 that says that this is the will of God, your sanctification, those are all the effects of your sanctification not the means to it. And you doing those things doesn't sanctify you. He sanctifies you. And if you are in him, he has sanctified you. There's proof of that. Just look at John chapter 17 at some point. Just pull up John 17 and look at... At John 17. He has a lot to say about sanctification in that chapter. He's praying to his father in that chapter in front of the men that he's actually talking to his father about. and He says this in verses 16 and 17, they are not of this world even as I am not of this world. Sancti- sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. He says they are not as I am not. He didn't say they will not be They will not become less of the world. They are not because He is not. And pray tell what does John 1 say is the Word? Sanctify them by your Word. What does John 1 say that is the Word? And what did he mean when he goes on later in verses 18 and 19 says, You sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. For their sake I sanctify myself, that they themselves may also be sanctified in truth. Ask yourself this, how did the Father send the Son into the world? Perfect? Or just potentially perfect? Was Jesus more sanctified at the end of his life than he was before it? The truth is is that God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And Jesus has always been holy, perfect, the sinless, spotless Son of God. He didn't become that. There was no progression in His sanctification, which is why God tells us once again of His will in 1 Corinthians 1. Twenty he says, "Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through his wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe." And there is that separator. There, there is the sanctification and the will of God for you. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who were called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers. There weren't many wise according to the flesh. Not many were mighty or noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not. So that he may abolish the things that are. So that no flesh may boast before God. And here comes the finale. The crown of glory for all humanity. Verse 30. But by his doing. You. Are in Christ Jesus. Not your doing. Who became to us wisdom from God. And righteousness. And sanctification. And redemption. So that just as it is written. Let him who boasts. Boasts in the Lord. He became those things for us. We are sanctified already. We just now need to realize this. And when we do, when we realize that he has sanctified us already, when we do and as we realize this, we will fall more and more in love with the lover of our souls, which will then bring clarity to that other thing that we're told is the will of God in our lives. 1st Thessalonians 5:18 Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you Saints it's when we see that there is no one that can stand in the place of God it's when we understand that because he alone is standing there already standing there in our lives over our lives, that we can begin, finally, to begin to wonder. Not at the dumpster fires that we see in the lives of these people in the Bible, or the dumpster fire of the lives of the people we see around us, but we can begin to wonder at the God that sees us, that knows us. The God that has made us holy in his Son, It's then that we can wonder at the God of Jacob, of Leah, and of Rachel. And it's when we see the magnificence of the God that has made these saints, these sinning saints, holy, the one that has set his love on them, that we can finally understand that no matter what their lives look like, no matter what our lives looked like, no matter what happened in their lives that doesn't seem like it's fair, no matter what happened in our lives that don't seem like it's fair, that it's easy or nice, it's all amazing grace if it's in Him. And this, this then should cause us to wonder at the God that has sanctified us, that has made us holy, that has now, even now, allowed us, even now in our sin, allowed us to boldly enter into the throne room of grace. And when we see God this way, when we understand him in this manner, It's then that we'll begin to walk less in our old sin and more in him as we're conformed more and more into the image that is set before us, which is Christ. Let's pray.